It may seem strange to begin our Advent preparations with a reading that is typically done on Palm Sunday, the story of the triumphal entry. But that's kind of the whole point. Behold, your king comes to you in a way that you could not anticipate, in a way that none of us expected, in a way that completely defies our understanding of who God is and how God presents himself to his people. Coming not as a warlord on a mighty horse with an army behind him, but coming with a crowd of the local rabble that he has collected from the outlying areas of Judea. Not coming as a king in glory with pomp and might and circumstance, but coming as a helpless child, dependent on his mother and father. The revelation of God is always something that upends and defies our expectations, because isn't that just like God to do that very thing? But as we continue in our journey from Revelation, as we enter into the heart of Revelation, where things start to get really interesting, you could say, just a reminder that Revelation is exactly about that. It's about revealing, not concealing. It's about showing, not hiding behind codes that must be broken, but showing the plan of God from all, self, from all time, God's plan of salvation for all people, for all things. And Christ stands at the center of all human history, the center of the entire cosmos. Everything you could say revolves around him and what he has accomplished for all things. So the images and symbols of Revelation, as terrifying, as frightening, as difficult as they may be, are actually meant to help us draw out the message of salvation and the message of hope. As I've said, people have made careers selling lots of books and making lots of money on claiming to have the code of Revelation figured out, but that defeats the purpose. Yes, Revelation is a difficult book to understand, John himself, who witnessed these things, he stands bewildered and befuddled at times, not understanding what he's seeing. And how could he? He is seeing the whole swath of human history, past, present, and future, all play out in a grand panorama all at once. In our Bible study this Friday, I used the image of the Bayou Tapestry. You ever heard of that? It's that long, long tapestry that tells about the story of William the Conqueror. And it's quite a lovely thing, but it's very, very, very long. To take it all in at one glance would be very overwhelming and hectic because it tells the story as the tapestry unfolds. So too it is with John and his revelation. He's seeing everything, everywhere, all at once. So of course, he, like us, is going to be befuddled and confused. And so when we zero in on a part of the tapestry in the same way that we zero in on a part of the readings that we had today, we can't forget the whole picture of what's happening. And again, these symbols and images are meant to draw out the meaning of what's going on. And the meaning is about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message of hope and love and liberty for all God's people. And these images can be paradoxical. Last week we talked about the Lion of Judah who arrives on the scene and they're expecting, of course, a ravening, raging lion, but what they see is a lamb who has been slaughtered. Quite a paradox. From the king of the jungle to a helpless, sacrificial lamb. 
So too with these martyrs that we meet often throughout the book of Revelation. They're central to the story. The martyrs are described as victors, as conquerors, as those who have defeated their enemies. That makes no sense, does it? Because a martyr is someone who was killed because of their faith. They were tortured because they professed faith in Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb. So how could they possibly be victorious over their enemies when their enemies seemed to be the one that had victory over them? Again, that paradox is what gives us rise to thinking about the deeper message that's going on here. And the martyrs stand as an important key to understanding what's going on. Because the martyrs stand as those who are steadfast, those who are faithful, those who no matter what is going on in the world around them, when it looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, they stand ready to proclaim Christ as Lord, to proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. They are ready to die, to die to their selfish desires, to die to the way the world demands they conform, to die, if necessary, an actual physical death for what they proclaim. And they're willing to do this because the central question of Revelation, they answer with a resounding yes. And that question is, can we trust this God? Can we trust this Jesus? They say yes. But can we really trust him? Again, when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, when we are suffering pain, when we see everything that's going on around in the world, how can we proclaim the goodness of a loving God? But the martyrs say, yes, we can trust this God, we can trust this Jesus, because he did what he said he would do. He came as one of us, he died as one of us, he rose again as one of us, and he is seated at the right hand of the God the Father in glory. And John is a witness to these things. John himself, who did not receive a martyr's death, but was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his confession in Jesus Christ. He stands with the martyrs who stand in that faith that we all proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord not in spite of or because of the things that we see going on around us. Jesus is Lord no matter what. And so in chapter 7, we are brought to this royal um, event where the 144,000 are sealed. Uh, Susan didn't read that part, but I'll just gloss over it really quick. It's because it's just listing all the tribes of Israel and 12,000 people, right? And 12,000 times 12, we get the number 144,000. Not to be taken literally. Got to make that clear. The number of the sealing of these 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel is a symbolic number, right? We see the 12 apostles taking on the role of the new Israel, the church. And so this sealing of these 144,000, we can understand as kind of a baptismal ceremony of sorts. Because at a baptism, the priest will take the person being baptized, will dip their thumb in oil, and will make the sign of the cross and says, I seal you as Christ's own forever. They're marked with oil, which will wash away, but that marking is indicative of the deeper claim that Christ makes on his people. And so too is it where our reading picks up where Sue started, this great throng of all peoples and all nations. 
So this group of 144,000 representing the people of Israel and this great throng representing all the peoples of the world, all nations, ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, what we see is the completeness of salvation, the universality of salvation, that the Lamb has died and invites all people to know of his salvation. And this leads immediately to the worship that happens in heaven. Again, I've talked about this before. Heaven is a loud place. It's not just angels strumming their harps nicely, that kind of very romanticized image we have. It's robust, it's loud, it's deafening. Heaven erupts into worship after the great crowd of witnesses have been sealed. They're, they're being confirmed that they are indeed the people of God. And isn't that just like Jesus? On earth, he knew how to draw a crowd to surround him, like in our reading, right? The crowds are following him into Jerusalem. Here too in heaven, the crowds have drawn around to give praise to God the Father who sits on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. And it is the martyrs, the ones who are in the white robes who lead this praise of God, as deafening it as it is. They are clothed in martyrs' clothing, the white robes of the Lamb. Now, white robes, of course, we know are traditionally baptismal garb, right? I remember looking back in my photos as a kid and seeing that, why did mom draw me, uh, dress me in a dress? Come on, mom, I'm like, you know, a week or two old and you've got me in this long flowing gown. And of course, it's because of the baptismal imagery of the white robe. I mean, as a priest, I promise I'm not going to take off too many layers here. I'm wearing a white robe, Phil is wearing a white robe. Give us a bow, right? <laughs> the white robe is, a, is indicative of that baptismal identity that we have, that we are marked as Christ's own forever. And so here the martyrs are also in those white robes being reminded of who they are and whose they are. They belong to the Lamb. And they say that salvation belongs to God. Of course it does. God is the one who decides who he calls. He calls all people. Maybe not everyone responds, at least not in the way that they ought or should. But salvation belongs to God. And it is quite a claim of praise and honor in this deafening cacophony of praise that occurs. And then things are getting amped up. Remember that scroll with the seven seals and six of the seals have been opened. We get to the moment of truth. The Lamb is about to open that seventh seal. Everyone is getting ready. What is going to be in this seventh seal? It's building to a big climax, a fever pitch. We've caught our breath. John has caught us up in this heavenly bliss. The scroll is opened and... Silence. Very anticlimactic. We're expecting something big to happen, especially after everything that we've seen and silence. Our expectations are upended. We were expecting something big to be revealed. The final seal is opened and John says, silence for a half an hour. Now it's not that John is sitting there looking at his clock saying, okay, any time now. The half an hour, again, is not a literal de depiction of time because John is brought up into eternity. How is he going to have any concept of time as it normally unfolds for us here on earth? But that's exactly the point. 
after the deafening praise of heaven with all the noise of the entire cosmos going on, building to something big, silence. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point that stands before us as we enter into the deeper contemplation of what this silence means. It's a silence before the word of God. How often do we rush to fill silence with noise? Silence can become uncomfortable. It can become disorienting. And yet here, even for John, it's exactly that. But it's just a silence, not an empty silence, but a silence that is full, reverberating with the presence of God as he sits in his throne with the heavenly host gathered around him. It's the silence of God. Now, the silence of God, as we will see, can be experienced in that way when we enter into those times in our life of profound suffering and desolation where the world seems to be going to hell. But this is a different kind of silence. It's a full silence, a pregnant silence, a silence that invites us in to allow ourselves to be overtaken and overwhelmed by silence by letting go of everything else that can cause noise. So we have this silence that invites us to sit, to digest, to reflect, to let go, to pray, and to praise. Because here we have, with the seven seals being opened, the full revelation of God. God is on the throne, and the Lamb has called all people to himself. We have the Word made flesh. In this Advent season, that's what we're building toward. But think about that. The Word made flesh. God himself living among us as one of us. The Word who created all things by speaking all things into existence. The lion who is a lamb and the lamb who was slain, but the lamb who is still living. The silence of God sitting before us on the throne. All of these things in the silence that John experiences should invite our deeper contemplation. And this silence also is a moment for us to catch our breaths. Because as Sue read as we get into chapter 8, it is indeed like a descent into chaos. Where all hell is being leashed upon the earth. And that's where our silent reflection is so important. We ask and we wonder... Why does God permit suffering? Why does God allow it to happen? Especially when it happens to ourselves. It's a natural response to say, why God? Why me? Well, being a Christian does not automatically mean that you are immune from suffering. The real question is not why me, but why not me? What makes me so special that I am now immune from suffering and pain? But it doesn't answer the real question about why God would allow this. But the real reason is is precisely that we might be saved in and through and with our suffering. Think of what Christ went through on the cross. He didn't avoid suffering, although he prayed that his Father would remove the cup from him. He entered into it for our salvation. You see, if we pursue a life of holiness and virtue and righteousness only when it's easy to do so, our virtue is bound to be shallow and fickle and unlikely to last. Again, think of the martyrs. 
and their profession of faith. They didn't give up when the world told them you should reject Christ, you should turn your back to him. They stayed true. They stayed steadfast. Nor should we have the connection that, oh, well, being a virtuous, holy person means that I'll become, receive some sort of material blessing. Well, again, that's mixed motives. We cannot achieve happiness in the world to come if we become too attached to the world that is. And suffering is a way to prevent us from becoming too attached to the world. Again, think of the martyrs and their claim. They went through immense suffering for their very faith. But they didn't get going, they didn't leave things when things got going difficult. And so in closing, when we see these awful things happening in the world as they are presented here in Revelation with the angels, again, we are looking at what has been, what is, and what will be all at once. We know that bad things happen in the world, and that bad things happen to good people, that suffering and pain are real, but we serve a God who is sovereign all these, over all these things. We serve a God who can use even these things, and especially these things, for our salvation, for our redemption, for a way of getting our attention to focus on what God wants us for us. Because God, what God wants for us is nothing but the fullness of life in him. It's why the lamb was sent. It's why the lamb was slain. It's why the lamb was silent. To offer us the opportunity to answer that great question. Even though the world is falling apart around you, will you trust in the Lamb that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will be there with you and for you? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.